Good morning. Glad you all sprung forward all right. Uh, a new time change. It was fun being here at 9 this morning, being able to celebrate with the, uh, the courageous then. You all still get a lot of credit for being here too, so uh, thank you for being with us. Uh, it's my pleasure to continue in the series on Hebrews that Genesis has been involved with. In fact, I've been following along with you all. Uh, so I live in Worcester, which is the snowiest city in the U.S. Uh, we've got about 115 inches right now, about an inch and a half more than Syracuse, so we're hanging on. Um, but we had a time in which we weren't able to gather together to celebrate, and so uh, I watched Michael preach on We Will Rest, talking about what it means to step into the Sabbath rest that Jesus provides for us. Two weeks ago, Josh preached on what it means for Jesus to be our high priest, and we're going to touch on that this morning. In fact, Josh gave a little teaser to Melchizedek, which is a character um, that we're going to spend some time with. And in Josh's time, he talked about how a priest is somebody that mediates and sympathizes with the people. So it's not just somebody that goes before God for the sake of the people because he's perfect. No, besides Jesus, everybody has wrongly run away from God. Everybody has chosen their own way. So these were imperfect men that God had chosen to step up and mediate for the people, but also sympathize with them. And that's the beauty of Jesus is that he became flesh so that whatever we're going through in trial, hardship, or temptation, we now have a God who understands that he stepped into our lives so that when we cry out in pain, he knows that cry. In fact, because of him, we don't have to cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was the one that said, I'll take the justice. I'll take the punishment for you. And not only that, in light of this, Jesus is not only greater than all the other priests, Jesus, the author of Hebrews tells us, is greater than the prophets of before. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses, the greatest prophet in Israel's history. Jesus is greater than the Sabbath, and he motivates our faith and authorizes our place before God. So this is his priestly role, and yet he even does more. And last week, Michael talked about how he helps us grow in our faith, that we can take ownership of our growth, but really, we're only going to be able to grow if Jesus is the one that is our foundation, and Jesus is the branch. He's the vine of which we're connected to, because it's from his power that we can then move forward, being able to pour our lives into others. And really, growth will come if God's character is our anchor. And actually, I wore this shirt on purpose this morning as a visual. The shirt says, anchor of my soul you sustain. It's actually a song that a group in Portland called Beautiful Eulogy, and what a name is that? The possibility that we could die to ourselves and it would become something more beautiful than if we were the ones controlling our lives. And they invited a singer-songwriter named Josh Garrels to sing the chorus. If you go home, I encourage you to listen to the song on YouTube, Anchor. Uh, you can find a place where it has the lyrics. It's beautiful. But Michael helped us understand, okay, it's time to grow. We need that anchor of our soul to be in Christ. And so this morning, we're going to talk about this fascinating character, Melchizedek. And I do have a story sh to share with you. Yesterday, I got a text in the midst of thinking about and praying about this sermon from a coworker of mine. He works at Clark University, where I also work. Uh, he's in the graduate school department. 
And he said, hey, Mike, uh, Duke and UNC are playing. I'm going to be watching it. Do you want to come watch it with me? And I had the uh, pleasure of watching it last year with him and his wife. And so, you know, despite the fact that I was going to be here with you all this morning, I trusted, okay, Holy Spirit, let me step into this opportunity. Let me not try to organize my day in such a way that I wouldn't be able to step alongside what you're doing. And so I went, not with any plans of what was going to happen, but just to be available and praying, okay, God, if it's just to hang out and watch a game, that's great. But as uh, we were watching UNC lose, and I'm a Tar Heel, so that was painful. I need priestly comfort right now in the midst of that. Um, as I was watching the Tar Heels lose, my coworker's wife said, so what are you and your family going to be doing on Sunday? All right. And, uh, and I said, well, actually, I'm going to be giving three homilies tomorrow. And they were like, do you do that normally? <laughs> And I said, yeah. And I thought, you know, some people may ask that, and they're like, well, let's shut this conversation down. I don't even want to know what he's talking about. But his wife said, well, what's the theme? And you may be a follower of Jesus, and Melchizedek could be a mysterious figure, but if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is somebody that only shows up in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 and Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. So it's not that he's a predominant figure, per se, in the Scriptures. So how do I step into the place of my life with people that I don't know what they know of the scriptures and explain Melchizedek. And that's what I'm going to do with you all this morning. This is how I told the story. I said, well, we know that, you know, when God created the world, uh, humanity decided to want to run things their own way. They said, you know, this relationship with you, God, how you've got it planned out, uh, we'd rather have the knowledge of good and evil to determine what is good and what is evil. And so we broke off that relationship, and, and yet God said to Abram, who probably worshipped many gods in Ur, no, Abram, through you, through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. Now, Abram didn't earn that promise. It was complete grace. And we see that Abram wasn't a perfect guy. In fact, in the next chapter, he's giving his wife away to Pharaoh and saying, hey, you know, I know you're really beautiful, Sarai, but, like, we're coming into this land, and uh, if they think that, you know, you're my sister, they're probably going to kill me. So let's uh, trade you off. You can go be part of Pharaoh's harem, and uh, we'll be okay. You know, probably not somebody you would want leading your church today, and yet this is the uh, father of faith for us. And God in his grace steps in and sets a plague on Pharaoh's house and his workers, and Pharaoh's like, why in the world did you not tell me that she was your wife? Like, please leave and take all your stuff with you. And so God protects them. There's no punishment, and they go on. And then we see them, and Abram's brought his nephew with him, Lot, and they get to this area of land, and Abram looks at it and says, I don't want to be divided, Lot. I don't want us to fight. Look out at this land. You choose what you want. And, of course, Lot looks at the land that looks really good uh, near the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and says, yeah, that's my spot. And God encourages Abram and said, don't worry about that. Look north, south, east, west, all this is going to be yours. All this is going to be part of your family. And then in chapter 14, we get an epic battle. And I don't use that word lightly. It's a battle of kings and kingdoms that come in on this field. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah flee. Lot's family is taken captive. Abram only has about 300 plus men and says, we're going to rescue my family. 
and in some way has got to be relying on the promise of God that his line's going to continue because how in the world are him and 300 men going to go up against kings that have just conquered these other kings and kingdoms and rescue Lot and his family, and yet he, he's given the victory? I mean, what a story. But let's not desensitize that. This is hand-to-hand combat. This was life and death. This was Abram taking his life and saying, you know what? I'm going to trust these promises are greater. I'm going to go in and I'm going to rescue Lot and his family. And I'm only going to do it with 300 men. And so more than likely this battlefield was bloody. We don't know how many losses there were. But he saw the destruction and the violence and the greed of humanity full frontal. And in the disarray and chaos at the end, somebody appears on the battlefield. This king of Salem, this Melchizedek. And he comes in the most hospitable way. He comes with food. He comes to Abram and says, you are blessed of God. You are blessed. And Abram, in his amazement at that moment, as that light pierced the darkness, said, well, here's a tenth of all I have. If this is true, thank you. Here. I don't know what's coming next, but this statement is worthy of giving some of the best I have. And the key is in Melchizedek's name, too. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then he's from Salem, and Salem is shalom, which is God's flourishing peace. So we can see in this moment, this incredible real-life moment in which all the things that could throw Abram off from trusting God, God sends Melchizedek priest of the most high God, king of Salem, to step in and minister to Abram. How gracious is that? And what I want you to begin to think about this morning in your life is what is the battlefield that you're bloodied on right now? Where is the chaos entering into your heart and into the places and the fields where you're interacting with people and you're at battle where maybe you need to be forgiven? Or maybe you're afraid, or you're starting to doubt God's promises to you. Where are the places in which there's wreckage? Because here's the thing, as great as Melchizedek was, that Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, would remember thousands of years later. Like, let's look to this person. If Melchizedek is that great... What does it mean if Jesus defeated death itself and now comes back to step into our battlefields? Are all the things that we're trying to control with our careers and where we live in our houses and with our families, if they're not going to give peace because all these things can be taken away, are we willing to trust that if what Jesus said is true, that there's actually a greater peace? And my coworker's wife looked at me and she said, well, that's the question, isn't it? And sometimes it's hard for me to sit in those moments because I just want to provide the answers. But if we look at Jesus' ministry, so much of it was him not giving an answer. It was actually him giving another question to help unearth what people were really thinking.
And so I have to trust God with them that he's got something more in store, that his Holy Spirit in that moment could maybe provide more than if I just kept talking. But I'm thankful to have that moment with them last night. I'm thankful to have this moment with you because here is the key. King Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God, came to Abram and blessed him after the heat of battle. But we have King Jesus, great high priest of the Most High God, King of peace, who walks with us before, in, and after the battle and keeps coming back. See, the title of my sermon this morning is, We Will Draw Near to God. But I intentionally use that title as a caveat, because if you look in Hebrews, you'll see that phrase, drawing near to God, repeated. But here's the thing. You may be sitting here, you may be a follower of Jesus that's struggling. You may be somebody that you're not even sure why you're here. And when you hear the words, we will draw near to God, you're wondering, number one, do I want to draw near to him? What is his character? Who is this God if this is the world we live in? I hear that question a lot. Or, I'm so far gone, my life's such a mess, is he really that powerful enough to restore? Or, I'm angry or hurt. Is this peace that bountiful? Does it multiply? Does it never end? I want to provide you with the answer, yes. And we can do that by going to God's word. If you have a tablet or your phone, go ahead and turn it on and scroll up. If you have your printed Bible with you, go ahead and open that. We're going to be in Hebrews. I'm going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. Again, touching on how the author of Hebrews lifts up Melchizedek so that we can have Jesus lifted up even more. And again, we'll hear that phrase, anchor of the soul. So beginning in... In verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, Salem priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. What was it like? In that moment, and this is before the priesthood was established with Israel, after their identity had been changed from slaves in Egypt to freed people to go into the promised land. This is before that time. And so before sacrifices began in the way God ordered it with the tribe of Levi, in which you had the curtain with the Holy of Holies, what a fascinating preview that Abram doesn't have to go to a holy place after battle 
to meet with a priest. No, God brings the, pe- the priest out from the Holy of Holies to meet Abram where he is and minister to him with blessing and grace. Because see, so often we're, we're trying to prove ourselves either to our own hearts or to those around us, whether it's our bosses or our friends or people in positions of authority over us, that we think God's the same way. I don't know if I can commune with him. I haven't done enough. I haven't prayed enough. Have you looked at my life? There's not a lot of good there. My marriage is a wreck. I get drunk every weekend. I can't live another day without a little bit of meth. Or I'm addicted to shopping. If my kids are disobedient, I have no value. If I'm not making more money than I did last year, then I've got to work all the harder to feel worthwhile. See, there are so many things that we put behind the curtain, and yet all those things are like the Wizard of Oz. They don't have power. They can't meet us in our deepest need. They're the idols that we need crushed again and again and again. And here's the thing. We have a great high priest who has defeated every one of them, who has stomped on the head of the serpent, who has defeated death itself, risen up, is seated at the throne. See, all the other priests, they had to keep working, so they were standing in their work. No, 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 our priest is a high king who can sit on the throne because his work is finished for you. There is nothing else you have to do. He performs for you. You receive all the benefits. The curtain is torn. Do you believe that something that beautiful could have been done for you? Well, let's go back to chapter 7. Now looking at verse 15. What I just said becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This makes Jesus a better promise for your life than anything else that could promise you something to make you feel worthy. He's the better. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. There is nothing you haven't done by which God cannot reach you with Jesus. There is no depths you have plunged to in which Jesus has not plunged deeper to be able to pull you back up by his resurrection power. 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is good news. This is really good news. To the uttermost, always living to make intercession for you. Always pleading with God the Father. Not that God the Father doesn't want to listen because he delights in the Son. And if you're in Christ, you're a son and daughter, which means he delights in you. He delights in you. Think about that. The most powerful creator, father, king of the universe looks down on you and in Christ can say, I love you. I delight in you. I rejoice over you. Do not fear. I am Emmanuel. I'm with you. I have something better for you than anything you could turn to that's not me. To the uttermost, always. One of the things that's hit me this past year in my studies is that Jesus was the servant king. As you walk through Genesis, the phrase that he said that he told his disciples that about himself, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, that's on your walls. And yet, that wasn't just when he was here with us in human flesh. He's still serving you right now. He was the suffering servant, the man of sorrows that we sang about. He's also the continuing servant king, the one of which he has the name above all names, and yet he still wants to serve you. He still wants to serve me. That shakes me to my core if I really think about it. Because for all the wonderful people in your life that might have served you, or if you have no one that's ever served you, there is someone greater than all that is serving you. Taking time to think about that not only humbles me, but it just makes me wonder again, what does that look like for you, Jesus? And why in the world would I make sacrifices to lesser things and for lesser ideals or lesser visions that I have no control over? So if Jesus is even greater than Melchizedek, then what kind of righteousness and what kind of peace does he bring to us? And again, if he's defeated death and he's resurrecting, that means it's overflowing. And you may say, Mike, I don't feel that though. I don't sense that. Zach Eswine, who's a pastor, wrote a book called Sensing Jesus, Life and Ministry as a Human Being. And Zach's story is a grievous one. As God was growing his church, he had three young kids, and his wife came home one day and said, uh, I don't believe in Jesus anymore, and I don't want to be married to you anymore. And she left. And later that year, a good friend of Zach's, who's a pastor, 
who had a successful church and by all means God seemed to be using and was committed suicide. So it's a beautiful book in which Zach writes out of not only a position of humility, but just understanding how Jesus is our great high priest that doesn't ask us to come to him, but comes to us and sits with us. Here's a quote from the book. Jesus says to us, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus's peace, while not adding to the wreckage, is powerful enough to linger with the wreckage. See, we sometimes have a false idea of what real peace is. In our 21st century American society, peace is what can I consume, what can I do, what can I earn, and what can help me escape so that I feel comfortable. But Jesus' peace is even better than that. See, Jesus' peace can meet you in the bloody and the depraved and the darkness. And he's powerful enough to stay even when you want to run. That's the kind of redeemer we have. There's a film that came out in 2014 called Calvary. Now, if things offend you in terms of language or things offend you in terms of content of what people would do, then I encourage you not to see this movie, but I'll tell you the story. This movie was written and directed by a guy named John Michael McDonough, who's from Ireland. The film's set in Ireland, and if you know that right here in Massachusetts, people have big issues, including us, with authority and with priests. Just think of Ireland, where they've been in civil war in relation to religion for so long. And this film starts out in the confession booth with Father James. Somebody comes in, and I can't describe what he says because it's too graphic, but basically says, I was raped by a priest when I was seven. And believe me, that moment catches you, and you see the impact of Father James of that news, because this is someone in his small town that he knows, but we don't know him yet as the audience, and this is what the person on the other side of the confessional booth says. There's no use in killing a bad priest, but killing a good one, that will be a shock. I'm going to kill you, Father. I'm going to kill you because you've done nothing wrong. I'm going to kill you because you're innocent. I'll give you time to put your house in order and make your peace with God. We'll do it within Sunday week. Killing a priest on a Sunday, that'll be a good one. What you see in the film in this town is people that don't want a priest. They bring to him all their questions of the history of the church. They live in abuse, physical and sexual They live in apathy, and yet he remains, knowing full well that one of the people we're watching in the film is going to kill him, and he doesn't treat him any differently. What a picture of Jesus. Now, we see that this priest, who is human, go through his pitfalls. See, he was married before, was an an alcoholic. His wife died. He has a daughter, and then he joined the ministry. And his daughter now comes to meet and visit him during this week, and she's suicidal. All the things that could bear down on a human being and the torture of realizing also that somebody has said they're going to kill me within the week. And, you know, the interesting thing is, is the brilliance of the film is as an audience member, we come in as the judge. 
well, that person has reason to kill him. I wonder if it's them. I wonder if they're the one that's messed up. And yet, we are the murderer in the great story. We're the one that said, I'm going to kill you, Jesus. Killing a bad priest? How good is that story? But now killing a perfect priest. You may think, Mike, I've never had those evil thoughts individually. But look at us as humanity. Look at the continuation of slavery and racism and systemic injustice. See, we may think of ourselves as good persons, but have we really done all we have for our fellow man to lay down our lives for them? See, Jesus said, whoever would come after me, whoever would follow me must lay down his life. Must crucify himself. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me in the gospel will find it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world but lose your soul? see, we trump Jesus' resurrection. We trump his kingliness. We trump his priesthood every time we say, no, I've got control of my life. No, I can heal my wounds. Your sacrifice was not worthy for me. Because our sin put him there. That's why he came. And he came enough to linger with you. Sometimes he may be incognito. But that's why we named ourselves Emmaus City Church. Emmaus is spelled E-M-M-A-U-S. It's only mentioned once in the Bible in Luke 24. And it's right after Jesus was crucified. And he actually meets on the road two people that have followed him for probably a good amount of time. They've heard him share the good news in word. They'd seen him bring the kingdom in miracles. They've seen him love the disenfranchised and outsiders of society, including prostitutes and tax collectors and Samaritans. And yet they're leaving Jerusalem. They don't think Jesus is alive. But what does Jesus do? He meets them on the road. He doesn't come up to them and say, where are you going? Don't you realize I've told you all this stuff? Like, I'm alive. No, he comes and he says, what is it that you're talking about? Do you want to know how not only Jesus meets you today, as he comes up to you, and even in all your complaints and all the ways you've rejected him, he's still humble enough to ask you, what is it that you're talking about? I've got something better. I've got a better story than the one you're writing in your head. But here's the other thing. If you're a follower of Jesus today, that's what you're called to. church, do we come with our declarations without a listening ear? Do we come repeating the same words over and over, thinking that that will change without embodying what those words mean? Because Jesus embodied it in that moment. He walked with them. He shared the scriptures with them. He breaks bread with them. They recognize it's him. He disappears. They run back to Jerusalem in the middle of the night on probably one of the most dangerous roads outside Jerusalem in which if they go into Jerusalem, they'll be considered traitors because they follow Jesus, who is now a traitor to Rome. So they could suffer the same death as him. And yet they've realized, wow, he's alive. Our friends have to hear this. 
But when they go back and he appears to them again, it says, even in their faith, they doubted. In that moment, does Jesus say, I'm done with you? No, he opens the scriptures again. And with the patience of God, tells them this is the truer story. See, here's the thing. I want you to remember, most of all, that Jesus is our great king. Jesus is our great high priest. But from the beginning, when God has called his people out of slavery, he's called them a kingdom of priests. If you go back to Exodus 19, again, before the priesthood is established through Aaron with Levi, you will find at the beginning of that chapter that God refers to his people as a kingdom of priests, as a holy nation. See, they were supposed to bless all nations. And Peter repeats that language, the one by which Jesus said, on you, Peter, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. We've been studying First Peter as a church in Worcester. And Peter uses that same. He says, you're a royal priesthood. You're the spiritual house that God's building up. You're the holy nation. God's made you this way. You're a people of his own special possession that you may go out and declare his excellencies. You're a priest. And so my questions for you are, who's suffering in your life? Who's the one that doesn't know how to approach God that you're going to like Jesus does? Do you know how far he's gone for you? And are you willing to linger in the ashes with others until he brings new life? Because if we look at the story of Melchizedek, a priest steps into the battlefield. And the bloody, before, like Jesus, the bloody before, during, and aftermath. And a priest brings hospitality and says, I'm making room for you not only in the presence of God, but in my presence. And I'm going to bless you with food. And not only that, I'm going to bless you with words. If God is stepping in as your high priest right now and says, I did all this for you, if he looked at your life, how many people would you be able to say, God, these are the ones I'm doing it for? I understand that we are a family of missionary servants. I understand that the church is a kingdom of priests, a holy nation that is supposed to declare and display your excellencies, that we step into the suffering, that we make sacrifices. And so for our church, we ask each other again and again, where are we making sacrifices in our time, in our budget, and in our comfort so that others would know Jesus? If you want an example in my life, this always seems to happen on a Saturday. And a Saturday night at that. Uh, Aaron, who's a good friend of mine and is with me, and if you want to talk about Emmaus City, uh, he can give you wonderful answers on his own and probably tell you things about me that would be better to hear. Um, but a uh, great friend. Aaron had a friend of his from high school that was having a birthday party. And just because Aaron introduced me to him, I got invited. And it was at this pub called Leitrim's downtown Worcester. And so we were hanging out uh, with people that were there to get drunk, um, to step out of the, you know, discomfort of life for a little while. And it was beautiful because we met one guy that night who now has started coming to family meals and hanging out with us at Smokestack, which is a great barbecue place. If you visit Worcester, you're more than welcome to join us on the first Monday of each month. Um, we were there just celebrating his birthday. 
celebrating him. And I've already had a good conversation with him about, like, what does it mean to be a church? Because he has a Roman Catholic background and has issues. Aaron's had good conversations, and we're actually hopeful that he's going to step in with his wife to do something that I'll share with you guys after the sermon called The Story of God. But I left my ID and my credit card at the pub on Friday night. And the pub doesn't open until 9 p.m., so I had to go back the next night. And when I walked in the door, there was just one woman, young woman sitting at the bar who was working. So I said, hey, I left my ID and credit card. Um, you know, is it around? She looked around and said, I'll go up to the other bar and see if they have it up there. I saw it in a glass. So uh, when she came back around, I'm like, oh, it's there. I walk out the door, and I hear the Spirit of God say, go back in there. It's like you're like, God, do you know what time it is? Like, <laughs> like it's almost 10. Like, I've got to go home and prepare that sermon that we're sharing in the morning. Uh, and I like, call somebody up who's working on the bulletin. I'm ignoring that yearning. I get about a half a mile from the house, and I turn around, and I pull up. And of course, I'm like, what am I supposed to say? When I told my wife the story la later, she laughed. She was like, she probably thought you were going to hit on her. Like, <laughs> so I walk in. This was right before Christmas Eve. I said, this is going to sound wicked weird. Just step into those moments and acknowledge them for what they are. Do you have anywhere you're going Christmas Eve? Do you have any tradition like, that draws you to that time of year? And she said, I used to. And for the next hour, I got to hear her story. I got to listen to her pain, her family, leaving high school, going to work at a bar up in Maine, coming back, still seeing dreams diminished and not enacted, living with her parents again, and having her say, I don't know where I am. I know I'm lost. And I was able to say, at the end, after sharing the Emmaus story when she asked the name of our church and her saying, well, I'm about 50-50 with, you know, visiting you all. And I'm like, well, this might not help, but we still meet in a home. So if that freaks you out, like. <laughs> but I said, would you mind if I prayed with you before I leave? And she said, yeah, if you feel like it. And uh, I said, dear Lord, you know this young woman? Jesus, meet her where she's at. Our church has prayed for her. We haven't seen her yet. That doesn't mean that Jesus isn't walking with her. So, in Psalm 110, David sings a song about Melchizedek, and it's awesome. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Listen to that. Your people will offer themselves, that sacrificial language, freely on the day of your power in holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So David's recognizing God's covenant promises to him that a king's going to sit on his throne forever. And it's going to be in the order of a priest. And that his people are going to be part of this forever reign. See, that's the good news. That's God's new creation and restoration coming. When his kingdom fully comes... Shalom will be reigning. There will be only peace. People won't take advantage of each other. Evil will be eradicated. But until that day, we live in the in-between. The taste of the kingdom, but the not yet. And so, church, how are we showcasing glimpses of that? So that was one song written thousands of years ago. 
a person that I do feel showcases that today, and I'll share the lyrics from his song as we close, is Lecrae. This past year, his album Anomaly was the number one album on the top 200 billboard charts in the main albums category and the gospel category, first time in history. And if you look at his album, he goes through all the themes of what we deal with. He talks about politics, he talks about war, he talks about marriage, he talks about time, he talks about wealth, he talks about abortion, he talks about abuse, he talks about hope, he talks about identity. The first song in the album is Outsiders, the last song is Messengers. And so, is it hard to be recognized in a priesthood? Absolutely, especially if you're in Massachusetts. A lot of people criticize the priesthood here. And really, if you come from an evangelical or Protestant background, you probably criticize, maybe in some wrong ways, what God has done throughout human history with priests. But here's what he says in the last song, calling all the messengers, we've been given a call, been forgiven, risen, we're living to give him our all. Rise up from your past that's holding you down. This moment is all that matters. The future is now. How will the people know if we don't tell them, if we fail them? They're stumbling in the dark, but light is what we're carrying. You don't have to wonder about your purpose or what you're here for. Reflect his image and show the world who he cares for. You all have the identity of kingdom of priests. You don't have to ask for it. If you follow Jesus, it's here. You're part of that kingdom. If you're not following Jesus, I invite you. We're a bunch of broken, messed up people, but you can join us. And we won't always be perfect at sacrificing, but we can challenge and encourage and help each other to become more like Jesus by the power of his spirit. And so now we're going to do something that also recognizes how he continues to intercede for us. I just shared the gospel with you verbally. The visible display is the communion table. Jesus died once for all. But in our continual renewal of remembering that promise, that in me you will have life, we come to the table where he said on the night he was betrayed, here's my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance. Remember that. Not just eat that. Are you broken? What does it mean to do this, be broken for others in remembrance of me? Here's my blood of the new covenant, the new promise that's poured out for you. Come and drink. He's the one that gives everlasting life. And so if you know him and want to celebrate that, come to the meal. When his kingdom comes, the marriage supper of the lamb is the banquet we'll be sitting at, and it's a perpetual meal that lasts forever. Food is an incredible blessing that even in this fallen world, God has still made good flavors and good hints at who Jesus is, the bread of life. So come to this meal and celebrate him. If you don't know him, please talk to me, talk to Michael. Look for people that are on the sides that might be able to pray with you and just say, I don't know this high priest yet. I've been abused by religion or I've run away. Is he really that good? Come and talk to us. Let's pray.